All right, so the plan is to get down to uh, chapter 20. We'll see how we do here. Um, we don't have any slides for you tonight, but uh, you can just follow along and look up. Don't have a lot of uh, cross-references, so you'll be fine. But uh, these chapters are a, a direct call to the people of God to walk in holiness because of God, who God is. They're called to walk in holiness in the covenant that they've entered. They're called to walk in holiness sexually, fiscally, relationally. They are to make certain that they don't engage in any of the idolatry of the land or that which they had brought with them out of Egypt. And we will find that in like chapter 19 in particular, the Ten Commandments are in view and it really provides almost like a commentary on those commandments. And so as we go through that, we'll take a look. And while we're not under the law of Moses, this is a point that we've taken a lot of time to establish as we've gone through um, Exodus and Leviticus. We're not under the law of Moses. It certainly does not mean we are lawless people. Um, God has always communicated his law. Long before the law of Moses, there was a law that God had. And he even expected uh, the world before the flood that they would walk uprightly and in purity. And when they didn't, um, he brought judgment down upon them. Now, you're going to be very hard-pressed to find some written code and some written law like we do here in um, Leviticus or in Exodus. But it was... But it was clearly known to them that there was a law that God had. And when they broke that law, the Lord brought judgment upon this world. So the idea that when I say we are not under the law of Moses, don't think for a second that then translate into this idea that we are lawless people and that we live however we want to. The New Testament clearly calls us uh, to a life of holiness to a life of purity. And we will see many of the things that we find in the law of Moses are repeated in the New Testament as it comes to matters of walking in obedience. So the New Testament is complete and it's called to us to be holy as the Lord is holy. Actually, the, the same thing that the Lord is going to say here in Leviticus is to be holy um, for he is our Lord, their God, he says to the church, be holy for I am holy, I'm your Lord. And so we as the people of God allow our lives to be marked by holiness because of the relationship we have. That was true in the Old Testament and that's true in the New Testament. We live a life of holiness because of the relationship of the person we follow and we want to please him. So, we should never understand, I, I would say, even the law of Moses, uh, but certainly today the, the law of grace that we are under, that, that somehow this is just a, like an a, um, emotionless, relationshipless uh, uh, code of ethics that we're to follow like, you know, um, a, you know, some club you join and here's our, no. We want to follow the Lord and be like him because he is our Lord. And that these same truths are going to be uh, reiterated in the New Testament. So um, let's begin there at chapter 17. 
And in chapter 17, again, we're moving into this section of um, how to be the people of God, holy and set apart, the offenses that are to be avoided. So let's read verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron his sons and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. You are not free to take an animal's life without bringing it to the tabernacle of meeting. He has shed blood. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. It's quite harsh. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons. Goats is kind of the idea of this, this you know, pan, that, this God that they worship, after whom they've played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generation. So, where could you sacrifice an animal? Where could you take the life of an animal during the wilderness wanderings? You can only do it at the tabernacle of meeting. That was the only place you can do it. Now, this is going to be adjusted in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 20 through 28. Once the children of Israel come into the land and they are no longer this tight encampment of people traveling through the wilderness where this kind of idea can easily be carried out. But when they get into the land and they are spread out from border to border to actually do this would have been impossible. And so there is an adjustment, and you can read about that in Deuteronomy 12, verses 20 through 28. I'm not going to go that far into this point. But what is the Lord doing? He's impressing the people of God with the truth that there is only one God and Savior. There's only one person for mankind, and you must approach him, and you can approach him through the blood of the sacrifice at the tabernacle of meeting. You can't go and do whatever you want, wherever you want. You must do it in this prescribed manner. This really was a way to stop the idolatry that was going on. So there was this large congregation of people. There was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. It was not just the Israelites. Many Egyptians came as well. And whoever they are, it was a big enough issue that they were worshiping um, you know, uh, and, and committing idolatry um, while the tabernacle of meeting is right there in their midst that the Lord says, you cannot offer sacrifices anymore unless you do it here. It's only here you must come to me. And so we see that, again, this idea that it is, there's one way. There's one way to come to the Lord, and he gets to set the rules And today we know that there is no other name given under heaven whereby man must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. We must come to him. And, you know, people may say, well, I've got my own goat and I've got my own field and I've got my own knife. What stops me? 
Well, if you want to be accepted by the Lord, the Lord stops you. He, do, he won't acknowledge those other ways. He's not going to acknowledge these other approaches. Well, what if I do it sincerely? Then you will be doing it sincerely wrong. Sincerity is not the test for all goodness, is it? There's a lot of things that people can say, well, in sincerity, I did that. Well, you sincerely did the wrong thing. And I, I could give you many, many examples. Uh, but the one that always stands out to my mind is on 9-11, there was a lot of sincere Muslims that were carrying out their faith. They were sincere on what they were doing. They were sincerely wrong. You could, you could give to somebody um, wrong medication you can prescribe, you know, the solution for a, a problem around somebody's house with their plumbing, and you could totally mess it up. Then you say, well, you know, in sincerity, I was, you know, I was trying to do the right thing, but you were sincerely wrong. So sincerity is not the, the measure. I mean, truth is the measure. And so we want to walk in sincerity, but we walk in the sincerity of the truth. So it is only through the name of the Lord. So worship must happen at the tabernacle. You must come in the way that the Lord has prescribed. And, and really, as we read this, it's such a beautiful thing because the Lord's offering this peace offering, this, this opportunity to share in a meal and share in worship together. And so they're gaining, they're gaining access to communion and fellowship with their creator and their maker. This is not punishment. This is guidelines for their blessing. Verse 8, and you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or stranger who dwells among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not <coughs> bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from his people. So I probably should have stopped at verse 9. But as we go into, he's just kind of reiterating, this is the consequences if you do this. Now, verse 10 down to verse 12 begins to talk about a reverence and a respect that, that you should have for the blood. So we kind of new topic. Um, look at verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So that was a very common thing to do in idolatrous practices. Um, and they would, they would drink the blood of the sacrifice. And so this, you can read actually in Gen, um, at Genesis, Acts 15, at the uh, Jerusalem Council, when they're told they didn't have to um, be, you know, Gentiles did not have to be circumcised. But he says, you know, don't eat things that are strangled. Don't, you know, uh, drink their blood. Those, those were things that happened. Um, and, and to abstain from sexual immorality, all of those things happened at the temple of pagan gods. They would drink the blood. They would strangle the life out of a, you know, a little bird, believing that that life that they strangled from that would then go into the God they worship. Um, sexual immorality is rampant at these places. And so uh, th this tied in with idolatrous practices. Um, but the Lord is trying to show them the significance and the meaning of blood. Now, they don't, they don't fully understand it yet. They don't see it yet. They're at the beginning of worship, 
But in the generations to come, there's going to be millions of gallons of blood spilled at the tabernacle and then on into the temple that would be built later on in history. Blood is going to become prominent. And we know that without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So blood is, is, is how we find life, isn't it? It's, it's Jesus' shed blood that gives us eternal life. And so he's emphasizing to them the importance of this blood. And we keep on reading in verse 13. It says, whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you hunts and catches any animal or bird may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. So again, the respect for the blood, right? Drain it, but cover it. For, the, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So, I mean, it's pretty strong um, exhortation. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, tells us a pretty important truth concerning blood. It says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be he who thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. That's Hebrews 10.29. That's like the ultimate fulfillment of what is this foundational basic lesson that he's trying to get in the minds of his people. Understand and have respect for the blood. Because one day it's going to be the shed blood of the, the son of God, the lamb of God. And that blood you must, you must receive, you must be washed in it. And so the writer of Hebrews speaks of those who would trample and have no respect for the blood of Jesus. And how, what do you think is going to happen to them? What kind of punishment do you suppose is going to take place? And that people have dishonored the sacrifice of Christ and his shed blood is clear Voltaire said, the blood of Jesus or the blood of pigs, there is no difference. So the Lord is laying this foundational truth down of the importance of blood that will ultimately be fully recognized in the sacrificial offering of the Lord. And so when we come together in communion, we are told to eat of the bread and to drink of the blood, the cup that represents his blood and the bread that we eat that represents his body. Jesus said, you must eat of my body and drink of my blood. And so there is life in him. But we read some of these things back here. It's like, ah, what's the significance? The significance is don't trample the blood of Christ. Recognize there is no other way for our sins to be dealt with. So uh, chapter 17 um, kind of laying down some foundational ideas about worship, about the blood. Moving into chapter 18, this chapter begins to talk about, a great portion of it is going to be dealing with sexual sin, laws concerning sexual immorality. And so we'll open by reading verses 1 through 5. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. 
I think it's important. We're about to go into a series of exhortations um, of walking in sexual purity. But the way the conversation begins is this. I am the Lord your God. I've got a place to speak in your life. I am the one that has rescued you from Egypt. I am the one that has redeemed your life. I am your creator. I have a voice to speak into your life. Does he? He felt like he did with these people and he had every reason to believe that he, that he does. Does the Lord have a place to speak into your life? Do you give him that place to, to say what he would say about how to live? What are, whether it applies to these matters of sexual immorality, <coughs> or some other area. But this is how <clears throat> the conversation begins. I am the Lord your God. I have a right to tell you what you should do. Verse 3, according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, don't do that. Don't live like them. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, don't do it like that either. <laughs> Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. Why? I am the Lord your God. Again, he repeats himself. And this is going to, you're going to see this, uh, this phrase come up a lot as we move through, especially into chapter 19 and be repeated some 15 times, I think. We'll read of that. But the Lord has a right to speak into our life. He has a right to say we, we don't look to the land around us. We don't look to the Canaanites. And we don't look to the Egyptians. We don't look where we live. And we don't look to those places maybe where we used to live. We look to the Lord and his ordinances on how we should live our lives. And so in verses 6 through 18, there's a prohibition that is given um, to not come together um, sexually to those who are near of kin. And so I'll read just a couple of those verses so you get the idea of it. Um, but it says, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not Uncover her nakedness, the nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. And so <clears throat> just goes through. And you can't have these types of relationships. And there's a whole list of them that it walks through and speaks concerning. Um, verse 19, there's a prohibition of sexual intimacy during a woman's menstruation. And then in verse 20, it says... Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. So the Lord looks at adultery and he calls it defilement. We look at in our culture, in our world, the, the Canaanite mindset is of his adultery is it's an affair. And the Lord says, no, it's a defilement. That's something that is prohibited. If you are in a relationship with, a, with your spouse, you are not free, nor are they free, to have intimacy with anybody else ever under any circumstances. You are committed to them. And this is the law of the Lord. Verse uh, 
21 says, and you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. So this Molech, um, and I'll read the description that Francis Schaeffer gives concerning the worship of Molech. And I quote, according to one tradition, there was an opening at the back of the brazen idol. And after a fire was made within it, each parent had to come and with his own hands place his firstborn child in the white-hot outstretched arms of Molech. According to this tradition, the parent was not allowed to show emotion, and drums were beaten so that the baby's cries could not be heard as the babies died in the arms of Molech. This idea of taking young, innocent life and offering it up and taking its life is an ancient problem. It's a problem that exists down to our day. The problem is we've perfected it in our culture and in our society through abortion. But as an offering up of these children, they would do it in worship of Molech. And the Lord says, you can't do that because I am the Lord your God. I give you life. I'm a redeemer of life. You can't offer up life in this manner. And this is going to become a problem. Even one of the kings of Israel more than one, but he's going to Manassas, is going to engage in offering up his sons and will read in the Kings and the Chronicles of them passing through the fire. This is the, the terminology that becomes synonymous with this quote or this description that Francis Schaeffer gives of the worship of, of uh, Molech. And so even the, the, the kings are going to get engaged in worshiping this and yet there is grace and forgiveness. Manassas one of the meanest kings of Israel um, is taken to Babylon for his sin, of killing the prophets, of offering up his own sons, leading the nation in idolatry. But when he's in, in Babylon, he repents and he calls out to the Lord and asks him to have mercy on him. And the Lord brings him back to the land of Israel and puts him over the throne. You know, when I read of Manassas's uh, a prayer of repentance, I'm, I will tell you I am unimpressed. I'm like, that's not, that's not impressive. You know, we want to see more. We want to see, you know, like some kind of damage come to him. But you know, the Lord hears a truly repentant man and he shows him grace. So there is forgiveness for even the worst of the sins that would be committed. In verse 22, it says, You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is abomination. So here there's a, we've had a prohibition against all kinds of near of kin relationships. There's been a prohibition against adultery. Um, then there's this mention of Molech and how you should not offer your children up to them. And then in 22, there's a prohibition against homosexuality. And then in verse 23, there is a prohibition against bestiality. So this passage makes it very clear that homosexuality, along with all these other types of sexual sins that we've just read about, is forbidden and that God does not want it to take place. It's interesting to me that those who argue in favor of the Bible teaching, which is a a fruitless 
effort. But to teach that the Bible actually teaches that homosexuality is a good thing and is, it okay, is okay, they will actually go to this passage to find their justification. And you're sitting there going, how in the world would they find justification in this passage? And what they do is they begin to link it back to verse 21 in the worship of Molech. And what they say is the only prohibition for homosexuality is a kind of homosexuality that would have taken place at an idolatrous pagan temple. But that is not what we read here. The whole context then would have to accept all of these types of sexual sin. And that's, that I don't think there's anybody, I don't think there's anybody that looks at that and says, every one of those things, that's all what we ought to be doing. There, there are people who, would maybe argue for adultery or for maybe homosexuality, but they're, gonna, they're not going to be arguing for bestiality. They're not going to be arguing for, you know, a dad taking his daughter. I mean, and so there's all kinds of prohibitions here, but the way they get around this, attempt to, is by linking it to verse 21 and saying this had to do with a cultic, this is the word they use, a cultic um, uh, homosexual prostitute. And that's what's being forbidden. But that's just simply not what the text says. And if we look at the rest of the word of God on this matter, it becomes very clear. And I said at the beginning that we allow the New Testament to give us guidance and understanding about how we are to live our life. And I want to take some time to discuss this a little bit because here's the reason why. It is pushed upon us every day, all day long. Bestiality is not the issue of our day. I mean, all these other issues aren't the ones. It is homosexuality. And this is like, well, the, I, I, and I know as I talk about this, there, there could be some that would say, oh, you know, you're just, you're, you're just, you're railing against the homosexualities. No, this is what has happened, homosexuals. No, those radicals have made it an issue for us. They've brought it to our doorstep and they've told us to accept their sinful lifestyle, to applaud it and to appreciate it, and that we should encourage others to do it. And if we don't do that, that somehow we are the ones that are corrupt and we are the ones that are um, an abomination. And therefore, we have to speak about this a lot more, not because it's our favorite topic, but because it's their favorite topic. And they constantly push it onto our doorstep. And so we've got to speak to it. So in Romans chapter 1, it addresses this issue. In Romans chapter 1, um, I will pick up just for the sake of context at verse 22. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due." 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to debased minds to do those things which are not fitting. It's pretty clear that this is not a fitting activity, that this is not a fitting way to live, that the Lord calls this something that is shameful. He says that it is something that is vile. And then if we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so here it's clear that the Lord is not going to welcome in a whole <coughs> list of people who live sinful in, in sinful lifestyles. And a list is given. I don't think for a second we should think this is a complete list. It's a sampling list. It's a list that's long enough to let us know we all belong on it. It's a list that tells us that we all were a part of this. And we all were outside of the kingdom of God. Whether you're a thief or an adulterer or an idolater or a homosexual or a covetous person or a drunkard or whether you're a fornicator. He says, don't be deceived. These people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You used to be like that, but you're not like that anymore because the power of God has touched your life and transformed you. And you are no longer one who is like this. <clears throat> it is both a warning to not live like this and a commendation for those who have come out of these lifestyles and been changed by the Lord. So these are three passages. <laughs> Leviticus 18 uh, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, they make it very clear that we are not to do this. Now, again, we, we go through Leviticus 18, and there's only one on that list of prohibited sins that people will come, and they will want to change and say, no, it's okay. But what about everything else on the list? Or in 1 Corinthians 6, this, it's this one that they want to address. It's, it's this one where there's, you know... Um, Sodomites and homosexuals say, no, that doesn't apply. But what about the thievery? Is that okay? And so this is what goes on in my mind. If you are free to say that this type of sin is not a sin, and yet the Bible declares that it is, and it's the shed blood of Jesus that washes it, then why can't I then take everything off of that list? If you have a list and you want to remove one sinful item, if you have the authority to do that, then why can't I remove one or all of them? And now we get to the place where if you get enough people in the room all removing one sin, there is no more sin. And if there is no sin, then why did Jesus come to this earth? And if Jesus came to this earth to give an example, then why did he die on the cross when he prayed to the Father not to? There was one reason why Jesus came and died, and that was to seek and save the lost and to shed his blood. I believe it is a trampling of the blood of Jesus to say that there is not sin. 
where the Bible calls it sin. Because you undermine the work and the person of Christ. And so I don't think I have any freedom to do that. And I don't think you have any freedom to do that. We allow the Lord to speak. And these are the things that will keep people from heaven. And so this is why the Lord sent his son to redeem us and to save us. So don't be deceived when people begin to say, well, the Bible actually encourages this. And the Bible says that this is, you know, the way we should live our life. And, and no, it doesn't say that at all. And people will go to great lengths to try and make their point. One person, in referencing Lazarus, who was raised from the dead when Jesus called Lazarus to come forth and to come out. One person who thinks they understand the Bible say, see, Jesus was calling Lazarus to come out and admit that he was a homosexual. Come out. No, well, he's calling him to come out of the, his dead state in the tomb. But they will find any kind of verbiage that seems like they can, you know, apply it to their cause and they'll do that. People will make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. The Bible doesn't teach those things. And if you are one that's in that place where you're like, you're, you know, this is the temptation of your life. You're walking in holiness and purity and this, but this is a temptation for you. Maybe it's like for others. And if the question comes into your mind and says, well, what am I supposed to do if I have these, these, you know, this temptation? I have these, you know, uh, you know, yeah, temptation to live that out. What am I to do? You are to do what I am to do and what all of us are to do when we are tempted with any kind of sin. We deny ourselves. But see, the mantra of the day is indulge yourself. And if you would believe that for half a second, if you allow that to have any place in your life, you will find that you begin to be undermined in your fight against any type of sin. It's like, well, you know what? This is just who I am. That is not who you are. That is not who God's created you to be. I don't believe that God creates people like that. I believe we live in a fallen world and we're affected by our culture. We're affected by the things that go on around us. The enemy puts crazy thoughts in our heart and our mind and there's a world around us to affirm. But that's not who you are. That's not who God's created you to, to be. But you know... I don't believe that, but let me just take up the argument. Okay, so let's say maybe you were. Then you're still to resist that temptation. Just like if I was created to be a murderer, you're hoping that I'm going to deny that urge that I feel. I'm an angry person who loses my temper. I just, no, figure out a way to do this, okay? Please, for the sake of society and all around you. So the answer is the same. Although I don't believe God has created us that way. But the problem is, we don't want to follow the words of Jesus. Acts 8, Mark 8, 34, when he called the people to himself with his disciple, disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, let me just interpret put a different idea in there for whoever desires to indulge his flesh you're going to lose it but whoever denies his flesh for my sake and the gospels will save it
You're not going to find life in indulging your flesh. It's going to eat you up. Lust is deceitful. Every lust. The lust of homosexuality, the lust of covetousness, the lust of drunkenness, the lust of adultery, all of it. It's all sin. And the Lord died on the cross for sinners. Uh, and, and we're able to be transformed. So, uh, yeah, yeah, more time than I would really care to spend on this, but I just, I feel like we need to continue to hit this and talk about this and see what the Word of God has to say. Don't single out a particular sin, but neither do we lift a particular sin off the list of, you know, this is how you live a holy life. Nah, it doesn't matter. No, it, it matters. Well, in verses 24 through 30, of back in, in Leviticus chapter 18, the Lord warns them to not go down this road. He says, do not defile yourself with any of these things. For by these, the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. They were coming out of Egypt into the promised land. He was driving out the Canaanites and the Perizzites after 400 years of being in the land, giving them a chance to repent, of which they would not. And the things that he just talked about are the very things that they're engaged in doing. He says, don't do the same thing. This is why they're being cast out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. And the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes, my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations. Notice multiple abominations, not just one abomination. Either any of your own nation or strangers who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it vomited you as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commits them shall be cut off from among the people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinances so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. I have a right to tell you how to live. I'm your maker. I'm your redeemer. And so how does Israel do? with this warning to not walk in the ways in which uh, the inhabitants, the current inhabitants of the land were, were living and were being driven out. Well, they're going to make an error. They're going to end up doing the same exact things. I, I highlighted Manassas, who um, gets vomited out of the land and ends up in Babylon. But of course, the whole nation, I mean, the northern tribes go in 722 B.C. are taken and carted off throughout the Assyrian Empire. And then uh, the southern tribes <coughs> beginning, well, culminating in 586 B.C., starting around 605 B.C., they, they were taken off to Babylon. And judgment came to the land vomited them out because they were not given a special pass over the, the Canaanites the sin that they committed in God judge when it was in his chosen people, there's no favoritism. They were judged as well. Now God brought them back in the land and they're in the land at this very hour. But that's another discussion. But the point is, don't make these same mistakes, which unfortunately 
they did make those same mistakes. So a lot about sexual purity. I want to read one more passage um, on this before we leave and, and move into chapter 19. 1 Thessalonians 4. And if you're, actually, why don't everybody turn over to this passage? 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. <clears throat> this is a very broad statement about the call to sexual purity. Chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your holiness, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Remember how the Lord kept saying, I am the Lord your God? Those who know God. No, he says, you don't do it like that. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his, defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So the desire and the call of God for our life is that we walk in sanctification and honor as it relates to sexual matters, that we are pure, that we are set apart, and there is no pass. There's no, and oh well, I just struggle. No, this is what you have been called to do. And to commit any type of sexual sin is to take advantage and to defraud another person. You are not just doing it unto yourself. You are harming and hurting other people. And so this is the word of the Lord, that general call that we should walk in, in purity. And that is only found inside the confines of a, a, a biblical marriage. A man and woman joined together. This is where that relationship and intimacy is to be lived out. You're living with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you need to move out. You're, you're walking and committing adultery, you need to stop. You're, you know, you're living in a homosexual, lesbian relationship, you gotta stop, you gotta repent. You're, God has called you to purity. This is the, the word of the Lord. Chapter 19, uh, various laws that pertain to the family, the poor, and other um, moral matters and ceremonial rituals are going to be uh, brought up here. Um, very much has the Ten Commandments in view as you go through this. But there's something structurally I want, I want to point out as you work through this. Um, it, it comes in a couple of units. The first unit of instruction in chapter 19, verses 1 through 18, opens, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And this repeats itself, I am the Lord, seven times in verse 3, in verse 10, in verse, excuse me, verse 3, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, verse 16, verse 18. It, you see this repeated phrase. Um, if you find repetition of two or three words in a single chapter, that's, that's significant. If you find it like this, that's the structure, that's the overall message. 
And so um, with this, there's going to be um, um, some 21 laws that are talked about, about three laws per, per unit. And then in verses 19 through 37, the second unit, it opens with keep my decrees, and it also has seven times where the phrase I am the Lord is repeated. Verse 25, verse 28, verse 30, 31, 32, 34, 36, 37. And so, again, there's 21 laws, and there is these 14 times that we find this phrase, I am the Lord, and then it closes with that as well. So, the Lord is giving instruction based on who he is in relationship to his covenant people. God has a right to tell his people Israel, whom he's redeemed, how to conduct themselves. But he also has a right to tell us, for we are not our own. We've been bought at a price. So what is it that the Lord wants? The answer is not, I'll think about it, Lord. When the Lord speaks and says, this is what I want, the answer is not, I'll pray about it, Lord. I'll take it into consideration and in advisement. I'm going to kind of weigh it against other options. No. If he is your Lord, then you are his servant. And we yield. And we rejoice at the commandments of God. If you're at a place tonight where the commandments of God see, seem burdensome to you and seem problematic and troubling, read Psalm 119 before the night's over. And, and, and note the joy that the writer has over the word of God. And pray that the Lord would give you that heart towards his word. So that's kind of the structure of this chapter. Um, very identifiable. And verses 1 and 2, again, we get the call to be holy as he is holy. Um, Speak to, the children of, uh, to, uh, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the same exact language that's used in the New Testament for us to be holy. Because he's holy. We want to be like him. Well, I don't want to be holy. Well, let me ask you this. What is it about Jesus that you find you can't approve of? What is it about Christ that you don't like that you would say, I don't want to be like him? Is there something in his character, his nature, the way in which he deals with people? Is it his generosity, his love, his grace, his mercy? Is it the kindness he wants to bestow? Why is it that you or I would not want to be like him? To say I don't want to be holy is to say I don't want to be like Jesus. He says, be holy for I am holy. In other words, be like me. That's our motivation, is to be like the Lord. In verse 3, he says to honor your parents. In verse 4, he says, do not worship idols. Verses 5 through 8 speaks of instruction concerning the peace offering. Mainly, don't let this thing sit day after day. You've got to eat it in short order. And verses 9 and 10, interesting. He talks about gleaning. Let's, let's read those two verses. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, <clears throat> nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean the vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I'm the Lord your God. See, with being in a relationship with the Lord is going to change the way how I interact with people. With my parents, it's going to cause me to honor them. In my relationship with God, 
vertically, I'm not going to worship idols. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ignore fellowship, the peace offering with the Lord. But I'm also going to care for the poor. If I am in a relationship and Yahweh is my God, then it's going to change how I, I, I view the needy. And he says, now, listen, you got a field. When you harvest a field, don't be greedy. Don't go to every corner. Don't try and maximize every last thing. Because there was a system in Israel that the poor of the land could come through and they could glean. They could, they could pick up what was dropped or could go into the corners of the field after uh, the reapers had gone through. And of course, the most famous gleaner of all is who? Ruth. It's interesting. You read a passage like this, like, what is the significance of that? Oh, the significance of this? The Messiah is going to come through a connection related to that. She is going to be in the lineage of Christ, but she comes as a gleaner and meets Boaz, and they end up getting married. Great story. But even, I mean, Christ is in everywhere in this, in the Old Testament, even in a story like that. And he says, but don't be greedy. Let people come. Let them have a way to be taken care of. They're out in the field working. And so my relationship, he's the Lord my God, is going to affect how I treat the needy around me. Do you see that? It's interesting to see how the Lord is talking about, okay, you know, I'm the Lord your God. It affects you horizontally in these relationships. I'm the Lord your God. It affects in how I worship him. And so as you go through, you continue to see this. Um, verse, let's move down to verse 18. There's a lot, obviously, that I'm skipping over, but I'm trying to give you just a flavor for it. It says, if a man, uh, wrong, wrong chapter. Yeah, verse 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Interesting, that, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is something we read about Jesus saying, you know, in teaching, is that we should care for our neighbors. We should, how should we care for them? The way you care for yourself. That's how we should care for them. So uh, the second greatest commandment is, a, you know, first grace, we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourself. So even in the law, you have these great commandments that are being laid down, these deep principles. I and mean, we have all these commandments in here, some uh, 21 commandments that are found. And yet, in the midst of this whole chapter, Jesus is able just to pick up that one principle. Here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's how it's going to be lived out. But he says in this idea of loving your neighbor, don't hold grudges. Show forgiveness. And um, so, trust the Lord when you've been taken advantage of. Vengeance is him. His, don't take it into your own hands. <clears throat> Verses 23 through 25, he tells them as they come into the land to not eat the fruit of the land for three years. You see that at the end of verse 23. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you. It shall not be eaten. So as a way of just setting it apart for the Lord. Um, in verses 27 and 28, he says, You shall not save, shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. 
I am the Lord. So these were pagan practices. All of those things were pagan practices of mourning for the dead. And he says, I don't want you to behave like the pagans around you. I want you to be different and I want you to be set apart. And so classically, what people love to do is say, well, look at this. Tattoos are forbidden. But yes, so would be shaving the sides of your beard. So I remember having a conversation with somebody who um, said, uh, he says, I don't understand why all of you Americans have so many tattoos. He says, it says right here not to have tattoos. I was sitting there and he had a mustache and he had a goatee. And I, and I just was like, oh, you walked into this one. And I said, yeah, there is a lot of that going on. I said, hey, where's that passage? And he told me, I said, read that passage to me. And he read the whole thing. And as he read it, you could see the pause coming over him. He's like, well, uh, what does that mean? I'm like, I don't know. What do you think it means? Sounds like your beard's to be left alone. It doesn't look like you left your beard alone. And, and you know, see, I mean, this is just how we, we, we cherry pick things through Scripture, don't we? And so you may have a, a thought about, you know, tattoos and you may not want to have one. That's fine. Don't use this passage. Just find another passage for yourself. But don't use this one because this is the wrong one to use. So if that's your thing, uh, you know, good luck. But, you know, go, don't use this one. Um, these were pagan practices. Um, verses 29 through 31, they were to separate themselves from the false religions of the land. He says, don't prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot. A common thing they were doing. Lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. You should keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Worship me. Come to me and spend time with me. And this is what the Lord is calling them to. Um, at the end... And I don't know if this is a, a, a connection. I'm just going to put this out, out there for you to consider. Look at verse 31. It says, give no regard to medians, mediums, excuse me, or family, or familiar spirits. <coughs> Do not seek them. Don't go to the seance. Don't go to the Ouija board. Don't go to the tarot cards. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord it's interesting because we've seen a couple of places where the, it, it shifts from one point, one commandment to another. But it's interesting to see these things together. And I wonder if the, the, there's not some context that we should be reading between these two verses. I, I understand the challenge based upon the way this is written. But it's like rather than going out there, find the people that you know and you trust. And get some wisdom from them. Rather than going out to the mediums and going out to these other people. Find the old people around you who've lived life and know what's going on. Their elders are respected people. And you know what? Honor them. And I think this is, whether or not this is an exact connection, boy, I tell you, we need to hear what the older person has to say. We need to hear what the older generation has to say. There's wisdom there. And um, sometimes it takes a couple of decades to figure out how smart they really are. Because you got to run through your own folly first. 
And then you'll come to places like, ah, yeah, they did it right. Look at them. Wisdom to be gleaned from those that are older and have walked it. Now, chapter 20, I'm, I'm really, I'm just going to summarize this because this chapter deals with the consequences for the, all the sins we've just talked about in these uh, other chapters. So, for example, verses 1 through 5 talks about um, what happens to those that worship Molech. And verses 6 and verse 27, what happens to those who consult mediums um, ahead of the death penalty? Um, uh, what happens if you don't honor your parents? Verse 9. <laughs> what are the penalties for sexual sin? And verses 10 through 21. But I do want to just close reading verses 22 through um, 26. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I'm bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I'm causing, or which I'm casting out before you, for they commit <coughs> all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground. I have separated you, separated from you as unclean. Verse 26, and you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples. You shall be mine. And we read in Corinthians that we're to come out from among them and be ye separate, that the Lord might walk in, because the Lord walks in our midst. So, you know, as you go through Leviticus, suddenly you begin to see so much of the, these, these wonderful principles that lead and guide us coming out um, in the New Testament that call us and show us how to walk and how to live. So be separate. Be distinct. Be distinguished in how you think and how you talk and how you live and how you dress, how you Help the poor, what you think of the needy, how you show respect to the elder, how you honor your parents. All of these things should mark the people of God. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth, that you have not left us as orphans just to run about in the streets and figure out how we want to live life. You have adopted us and brought us into your family. And Lord, in your family, there's conduct that is becoming of your name. You are Yahweh, our God. And Lord, we want to live in a way that reflects that relationship with you. <coughs> Lord, we can think of no one that we'd rather be like than you. So Lord, make us holy like you're holy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.